you know, when I got in my undercover shooting deal, and I knew here we go, I knew it was, it was two dudes squaring off in a parking lot, drawing pistols and shooting and having and, and shooting to the death. Big, big dude, tatted from about here down. He walks in, looks at me, and we're split like this, and he just pulls out a pistol, and boom, leans over with his pistol right in my face. Said, "You're in my house." I was expecting a hard rescue, and then it just became inevitable. It ain't happening, and I'm gonna die in this roach-filled, piss-stained trap house. I guess the man upstairs has a plan. That's the, I mean, because I shouldn't be here, man. There's just, there's no way, you know, after these scrapes. That's how I think I've gotten through it. I was allowed, I was allowed to live through that stuff. I think there's a lot of value in hearing these police stories, especially Dallas police stories. We have the most wild stories happening here in the city of Dallas that doesn't happen in other places though. And random patrol officers who you know, every one of them has a story that the public just couldn't even, you know, wouldn't believe. Like I said, you go turning over rocks in the city of Dallas and you're going to have a career full of very hair-raising stories. So I think there is value in, in, in telling them. You're listening to the ATL Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assistant Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATL has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal, and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Hello folks, welcome to the show. I'm Joe with my partner Josh and Misty and Randy. I'm very honored to welcome on today's guest. He's by far the most handsome guest we've had on the Clearly. BTD podcast. Uh, matter of fact, he he requested that we do the shirtless, but I'm always here to accommodate the guests, so mm, here, we, awesome. here we are. Misty, Misty, Misty looks amazing. <laughs> Misty, we have a video that may or may not get leaked later. We'll not, not really taking place. Well, I've gotten this far. I've, before it's done, we'll be pantless as well. So, well, we can only really we can. My that. fingers are crossed. This uh, our guest is 20 year vet. He um, has worked Northeast Patrol. He is former SWAT. He is now in the narcotics unit. He's done undercover. He's now doing their training. I'd like to welcome on. Um, What's your name again? Senior Corporal. Oh. <laughs> Matt Baines. <laughs> Matt, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Sure. Does your mom call you Senior Corporal? No. No, no one does, actually. Just just me. 
Yeah. But it, you know, I'm sitting here next to Misty. This is going to be a tough act to follow, guys. I got y'all. I can't believe y'all did this to me. You actually listened to it? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, was, I, just, I can't stop looking at that, that bald head. I know. Ooh. I know. I need yeah. to. I need to look away. Put a partition. Yes. Yeah, so All right. So <laughs> you were born in Greenville, Texas. Right? Yeah. And how long did you? When, when did you move from there? I was actually born, I don't like putting this out there, but I was actually born in Virginia and I moved to Greenville um, probably, at a, you know, when I was a few months old. I uh, lived there for 12 years, um, then moved up to uh, Oklahoma City where I ran into some of your old people, Misty, and um, and then moved back here for high school and went to, to Naaman Forest in Garland. That's where I graduated high school. Went to Baylor for, I don't know, maybe one or two semesters, long enough for them to figure me out and be like, you know, we thanks for coming. We don't really need you back. Right. <laughs> you know? So off to the military it was from that point. Uh, growing up in um, in Garland, and then you joined DPD, the, were they the only apartment you applied with, or did you No, I put in for Garland, um, Dallas, maybe Irving, if I remember correct. Um, a handful you know I'd come back after out of the military and finished up my college degree on the GI Bill and was getting ready to graduate when Dallas picked me up I was actually still a student when I got hired on at Dallas but you know the city doesn't know that so don't tell anybody no way nobody's gonna listen anyway right so especially when they see the great Matt Baines as the guest <laughs> uh, so you grew up in Garland and one of the most exciting things about that area is Towny Small back then and that Toys R Us, and you get dropped out at Northeast Dallas. Mm-hmm. And talk about that. Yeah, it was um, just my upbringing in general was more like the Brady Bunch, you know, and, you know, the, they call it the Baylor bubble because it's a pretty sheltered group of uh, type of people that go there. And, you know, I grew up in a big, happy, loving family that we kept each other safe, a lot of love there. And then I get out to Northeast, and um, you know it's just deep nights. First watch at Northeast, and it's full of everything, everything you want, from all the all the dope, the violent crime, the murders, the good, honest, nice people, the good restaurants, and then the uh, the you know North Grove, um, all the gangs, and it was, and I loved it though. You know I adapted to it instantaneously. I mean there was not a huge learning curve for me even through my field training months um it just became clear to me and when dallas hired me i was like well i thought i wanted to be a cop probably you know because i did some of that stuff in the in the in the coast guard and was introduced to law enforcement that way and got my degree in criminal justice so i you know i was kind of tailoring that that law enforcement career and then when dallas picked me up i was like yeah i don't know if i'm meant that i don't know about dallas you yeah, know maybe. Yeah. yeah yeah and so um but i i instantly found out that man this is awesome and so we just started you know doing the dope chasing that's where all the all the action is is chasing dope and you guys know that from beating southeast the way y'all did and you know we had our little northeast goons as well and all the car chases and, and the drug arrests um the violent crime. I used to really like working murders, and you know had a knack for it. Um, so that was that was what my I think I did six or seven years in North, Northeast, and in that time I would get selected for you know gang unit um, 
TF, uh, mm. you know, the task force stuff. Yeah. Not the task force, but the with job enrichment. Um, so I would do months in gang unit, and then I would be on a, a burglary task force, and I worked a lot with deployment and got introduced to the, some of the plain clothes stuff. So that's what Northeast was for me, a huge culture shock. But, man, I slid right in, didn't have a lot of problems. So it's kind of prepping you for what you're doing now and what you've done in narcotics and undercover capacity. Sure, yes. Okay. Well, and being, you know, I worked at Southeast majority of my career, and, and you do, you learn so quickly in a matter of months of, of how things are as opposed to working in a different part of the city that's not as crime-ridden. And Northeast has such a diverse, it's it's such a diverse area when it comes to races, ages, and, and you got some really shitty parts of town, then you got some really nice restaurants and yep. nice uh, expensive homes and uh, you know influential people that live there. It, it enables you as an officer to kind of pick your path. You can go turning over rocks at 2 a.m. and you're going to find hell, you know. Yeah. Or you can, uh, you know, go the other route and, you know, kind of avoid some of the – because it doesn't take long to learn as an officer at, at Northeast how to get into some stuff or how to avoid it. And so there's, you know, there's different types of officers. And in Northeast you can, you can have a pretty good career kind of laying low, you know, writing tickets, you know, doing some of that lighter yeah. type of enforcement, or you can just go balls to the wall and get in as deep as you want. And that's what you did. That's what I did. All right, good. We have we have some footage and a video here, and we're going to play it, and then I want you to describe what the hell happened on this crazy incident and, and just how this went. <laughs> sure. All right, starting out in a car chase. Is this your dash cam? This is my dash cam, yes. I was doing a takedown for narcotics and northeast deployment. Critique your driving a little bit here. What's going through your head? Um, probably just adrenaline, trying to trying to keep him in sight, you know. Are you one man or two men? I'm by myself, one man. And I was being trailed by a bunch of plainclothes deployment guys that I had... I had lost. All right, now we're in a short foot chase, going through the gate into a detached garage. This is 2008 prior to body camera, so there's not a bunch of good things that could be done. Correct. So here's the fights already, already kicked off, and I'm yelling for cover. Okay, you're inside. You 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 chase him out of the car mm -hmm. and then and then what and then what happened? So he we just he just picks a random house apparently. Really? And it's a, at the corner. It's at a corner. But see how we're tucked in this alley. Yeah, yeah, it's tight. Dude. And you can barely get the door open. I had no this even though the chase was like six or seven minutes. Remember, it was when they implemented these these policies. Yeah. That no chase policy, and you can hear. If you start the video earlier, you can hear everybody, uh, we authorize code three, all the ridiculousness. You right. Know? And in my opinion, which which delayed me the necessary support because, you know, we're, I'm in a chase. He, he had just tried to run over um, Frank Poblins. Y'all remember Frank Poblins, Northeast Deployment. Officer. I've heard of him. So, um, yeah, I'm chasing him for a bona fide reason. It set up a dope deal, this, that, you know, this, that, and the other thing. It was, it was legit as you can get. And... So everybody's skittish as to whether or not they can dr drive aggressively and all that stuff, you know. And we still fight those problems today. Yeah. So um, 
end up in the garage with this guy and it's a detached garage it's not attached to the house and he's got nowhere to go and he turns around and you know you can recognize oh oh boy you know it's gonna be one of these super calm demeanor really big dude you know six over six foot i think he was six two something mm-hmm. i'll exaggerate him for this purpose he was like eight Ten foot, foot. Yeah. he was like <laughs> an, an incredible hulk you know? mm-hmm. and so uh we tie into it immediately but i'm young in shape not real scared at the moment and the first couple really solid licks i gave him i was like okay pcp or something you know this is having and he's just he's just kind of chilling you know just taking them and he's relocating me around that garage as he see fits you know yeah and there was this uh it's kind of funny you know how you get in a, a real shit storm and you look back even years later and you remember something kind of crazy mm-hmm. so i'm tangling with this dude and i catch this real obvious movement out of my peripheral down here down low and so i angle off and i'm square when i'm looking it's this little pit bull it's like a brown pit bull he's probably four or five months old so he's still a pup Mm -hmm. but he's not like a little puppy and he is that look on his face is like you know i'm i'm gonna be out here if y'all need me y'all got it he's he's walking and taking a shit at the same time (laughs) and he's like y'all y'all got this i'll be out here And he's leaving this little trail of turds out, out of, out of the garage. I will be out here shitting myself. Y'all keep fighting. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, super random. I don't know why I remembered that, but it was a long time. The reason I remembered it because years later somebody said, man, why did everybody smell like shit after this big... <laughs> you didn't want to tell them that you did your pants. Well, that wasn't me. I honest to God, that was not me. So, Great alibi. Yeah. yeah. And so... Uh, this guy breaks free from me. By the time we disengage in the garage, he's pretty covered in blood. Um, and I'm standing there holding his shirt as he as he walks right out of his shirt and he just beelines through the backyard, probably 20 yards distance to the back of his house. And he just, bam, kicks the back door in, goes inside. And I, so I draw my pistol and I go in right after him. And the the house was some hispanic lady okay and the right ahead of the door the small kitchen with a kitchen table and all the chairs were upside down on the table like she's either mopped the floor or getting ready to mop the floor <laughs> yeah and off to my hard left in the blind spot there's a refrigerator and the door is open and the lights illuminating and there's two little boys probably seven and nine years old and they're standing there in like spider roos underwear you know yeah and i'm taking all this in the lady is completely screaming at this point lost her mind this dude crashes and he's covered in blood you know crashes through a door and he picks a chair up and he's standing there like like a baseball player and so i point my gut him i say you throw that chair at me and i'm gonna shoot your fucking ass and and as soon as i say that man here comes that chair flying right at me you know and so i i duck the chair but he's like right behind the chair he's rushing he's rushing as he throwing it man yeah so boom i'm on my back you know still got my pistol out he gets off of me as soon as he flattens me he gets off of me and i'm like oh we're throwing furniture and shit now okay it's gonna be that kind of so man we we commenced to brawling in this house from the kitchen into the living room down a hall and i mean i was i was using pictures off the wall clobbering this dude over the head you know and then expensive like, 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 yeah. and smashing like spinning the picture frame around his neck like a yeah, hula hoop, yeah. you know a candle holder ah, bow, right on the set you know 
a frying pan on the stove. Boom! You know, I'm just, I'm just kidding. You know, yeah, yeah like but a Bugs Bunny. Half cartoon. kidding, but no, it was, it was that kind of. It was like Tom and Jerry in this house, and I'm. You can hear on the audio where I get on there at one point. I say, "Is my radio working? I need help right now." And Frank Poblin shows up. Um, he he was the one that was able to sort of hang with me during the car chase, and he gets there three four minutes into the into the ruckus, you know, and. So, Frank, if y'all don't know him, this happened right at the end of his career, so I think he'd probably put a good 75 years or something in DP. I mean, mm-hmm. he was old. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's old, man. He, he comes stumbling in there wearing blue jeans and a sleeveless Harley shirt and a, you know, a white ponytail down his back. I'm like, good to see you, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so uh, we end up, we're both with this guy. He ends up going down to Emma Hall and, and barricading himself in a closet which I didn't think was the best idea because if there was weapons in there, yeah. but it was better than the alternative. And at this point, I'm, I'm gassed. I really, I'm having trouble even breathing. So I tell him, dude, hold this door shut. I got to get out of here until I got to get on the radio and tell people where we're at because they're never going to find us in this house. So Frank's holding the door. He's like, good idea. He's holding the door. I go down the hallway, out the living room, through the kitchen, around the house, and I go out in the front yard. And we're at a corner, and I give the, the location on the on the radio, and then I hear the hell breaking loose in the house. So I'm like, damn, he's in there with Frank. He's got he's gonna kill Frank. So I go back in there, and this dude's out of the closet, and he's got Frank like this up against the wall, choking him. And Frank's got that that polished two two six three fifty seven sig, just kind of swatting him boom in the face, you know, with his pistol, and um. So I just, you know, hot, like hockey check him. We go into the bedroom, and I'm beating this dude with my baton from head to toe, you know. And then on the backstroke, my baton gets jerked out of my hand. I turn around, it's Eddie Reynolds. Mm-hmm. So he steps in there, bam, bam, he starts blazing on this dude with, with my baton. And then, <laughs> so I was like, well, at least people know where we're at, you know. Right. And then somebody, another officer shows up. I don't know who it was. Somebody has the bright idea of, you know, oh, the, mace. Oh. the pepper spray. So oh, here we go. So here we go. Pig pile on the ground. And oh, God. there's three or four of us on top of him. This dude, just like a bulldozer, you know, just powers up out of it. Still not breathing hard. Still not upset. He starts jogging back out of the house toward the garage. And we're all ducks in a row, you know, chasing after this guy. And... Scott Smith, you'll know him, an outstanding officer. Mm-hmm. He's on foot running up through the backyard, and I'm 10 feet behind this guy. I've been fighting him for eight, nine minutes at this point. And I hear it with conviction. You'll hear it on the video. Uh, Scott Smith, he's got a gun. And I peel off behind a tree, and I'm like, he doesn't have a gun. I've been fighting this dude, rolling around with him, everything else for a long time. He's not armed. And when I went behind the tree, I went to pull my pistol and my holster is empty and it was like such a denial that I ran back in the house looking under the kitchen I was like okay the kitchen is probably in the kitchen and I'm searching while they're while this guy's BPing up I'm searching for my oh. pistol sure enough uh it, during that during that fray he just somehow got it something mm-hmm. you know I asked those officers later how to, and they're like man we didn't see it we don't know how he got it we don't it so you know, it's one of those things, like in the academy, they do the gun grab and the weapon retention, and you got those young recruits. I was one of them. Man, I wish somebody would try to take my gun. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 
watch it, you know. I mean, careful what you wish for. Careful, yeah. And so it can happen, you know. And anyway, he climbs up in the attic. Misty shows up, um, first SWAT officer out there, and she starts kind of looking for a place for, for the command post, organizing perimeter, and the patrol had gotten so fed up with this situation, they went and they breached, made entry into the garage, jerked him down through the ceiling, and we took him into custody. Um, but anyway, that was right, and then as soon as that incident happened, I literally went to narcotics probably within the next month because um, I was supporting them on one of their deals. Maybe they... Maybe they felt sorry for me, I don't know, but uh, they asked me to apply, so I did, and I went up there and started my narcotics career from a uniform, in, a, in narcotics uniform squad. Because you, you were actually in uniform when you went, first got the yeah. narcotics? bottom right. of the barrel. And, yep. that, and that was when they, they just started that unit, right? Correct. Okay. Yep, who was, was, who was the supervisor on that? Sergeant Star Steve Sterling. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he came from Southeast. We yep. worked with him. Matt, I've known you for quite some time, whether it be in narcotics or SWAT. And then, of course, back again over there in narcotics again. But, uh, you know, that's that's a pretty funny story to, to hear. Most people don't understand the power of an individual, whether it be male, female, that is uh, uh, overpowered or, you know, high on PCP or whatever they may be high on that just makes them invincible, right? So that's just one of your stories of survival. You've survived several different critical incidents throughout your career. Have you not? Yes. Yeah. And I say survival and survive because um, that's exactly what you did. Do um, you care to talk about any of them and how they impacted you, not only personally, but professionally? Sure, you know, and, and that's that's why I'm here, and I think there is benefit um, talking to people like your pre your previous guest and myself um, and these, these younger officers, and even officers that are in our tenure and they're kind of ready to go out to pasture and ready to retire. I think there's a lot of value in hearing these um, police stories, especially Dallas police stories. Because as you guys know, look at, I mean, our pres president was assassinated. Dallas Police Department has somehow have, have, we have the most wild stories happen here in the city of Dallas that doesn't happen other places. The armored vehicle attack on headquarters. Shot I, I was, headquarters. Yeah, I was out on that deal. Um, we can sit here the July 7th, we can sit here and go you know, story after story that these Dallas police officers um, encounter. And y'all know how it is when you're like at the range and you're stuffing mags and you, a couple of your old buddies get around you, the stories start flowing. And random patrol officers who you know, every one of them has an, a story that the public just couldn't even, you know, wouldn't believe. So it's not just us you know that have these stories you spend you you go like i said you go turning over rocks in the city of dallas and you're going to have a career full of very hair-raising stories so i think there is value in, in, in telling them no that that's why we wanted to, um the bridge and the divide podcast we we started this to give all first responders not we're not we're not going to just have uh, a bunch of uh cops on we want to have the federal side on, which we've already had a uh, marshal on. We want to have firefighters on. Next week we're going to uh, report a, a fire, arson fire chief and get the nurses and doctors. Is Everybody awesome. yeah. has got a story to tell. You've got a hell of a lot of stories to tell. And, and most people would probably hear them and say, oh, that's embellished. These aren't embellished. These, right. are, these are some stories that one individual had to take on physically and mentally and it just we'll, we'll go in we're, we're going to get into some other ones but they just continue pouring on you like like concrete 
and it's heavy on your shoulders and it weighs you down. And I know that there's some things that I can't talk about because I mean, shit, I'll cry, you know. So, yeah. but yeah, but everybody deals with something different, and talking about it helps. And that's why we want to give people a platform to give them an opportunity to do that. It's therapy. There's no doubt. It actually, it really is. Yeah. We're having fun and shooting the shit, but still, these are serious stories right. that happen to a person. Yeah. You know, as we touch on these these incidents or whichever ones you want to come up with, I mean, I, I can think of three right off the top of my head right now that you've been involved in, one that we've both been involved in together, uh, that uh, you're, you're just not, I wouldn't say lucky, but they were incidents that could have turned into... Uh, you know something very very bad you've you've overcome these you've kept alive in these instances so what what uh what what kept you alive and what made you successful in these these deals um you guys can probably touch on one in a minute uh, you know it not to just get super religious you know like get into religion and and but well really i mean why not that's what it is to me um you know, when I got in my undercover shooting deal, and I knew here we go. I knew it was it was two dudes squaring off in a parking lot, drawing pistols and shooting and having and, and shooting to the death. I knew that's what it was. Um, and saying it, it sounds just like a very scary thought, but when it was go time, man, it was the way I could describe it is like if you're it's January. I mean, it's so cold outside. The ground's frozen, mm-hmm. and you're sitting around the campfire, and you take a double shot of bourbon, and you know that that warm feeling you get down in your stomach, and you just that that almost was this uh, warm, confident, relaxed. Is almost like shooters watch your targets, right? <laughs> and you got the double the double ear, ear protection on. You're focused, and to me, when that undercover shooting happened. Um, I wasn't worried, you know, I was more like, come on, let's do it, bring it, and won that, no contest, there was two threats and there was me, by myself, and um, what would that be to me other than spiritual, you know, and July 7th, sort of the same way when we realized that we had this dude pinned down and all that gunfire is coming you know, a lot of that stuff is physiological and it's auditory exclusion, and I've studied all that stuff. You know, your vision, for me, everybody's different. Me, my vision sharpens incredibly. Um, I do lose a little bit of hearing, or a lot of hearing sometimes, but your other, you, you, your body gives up other senses and gains in other, other, other your five senses, and for me on both of them, uh, all three of my shootings, my vision was incredible, and I'm not, I don't have the best eyesight. But I just remember those things, and things do slow down, you know. But um, look at the look at the wall on July seventh. We shouldn't have lived. No, there's no way we should. I mean, there's no not, way. Not where you, Danny, and the others were. No, no. no and then, and then that last volley, I'm standing there by myself, you know, uh, shooting it out with this dude, because I provided cover while they pushed to that concrete stairwell, and um, you know the. I guess the man upstairs has a plan. That's the, I mean, because I shouldn't be here, man. There's just, there's no way, you know. After some of these these scrapes, and anyway, that's that's how I think I've gotten through it. I was allowed, I was allowed to live through that stuff. Well, he he wasn't ready for it yet. You still got work to do. Right. Right. Um. I hear core confidence. 
I hear that inside you you have some core confidence. You believe in yourself. Where did that come from? Um, it's weird you say that because I don't feel that way. You know, no? I, th- I think I'm as insecure as the next guy, you know, or, or girl. Um, especially in a unit, you know, a high-performance unit like SWAT, you know. Um, man, I was, I, I don't know, maybe you agree or disagree. I was always so un- unconfident over there, you know, performing every day around those guys um and i just did my best and i worried about what i thought i need to worry about and didn't give a damn about stuff that i that i couldn't change or i don't think i needed to worry about um and so yeah i don't i I wouldn't describe myself as a super overconfident individual um but i always man i don't run i just I, i don't have that in me i don't i'm and I will, I'll throw the, hey, we're doing this, you know, be with me, and I'll push forward. And that's just kind of how I've always lived. And, you know, and there's a lot of police officers especially that will disagree with that. You know, after that little incident I had there on in patrol, the sergeant pulls me in his office the next day and says, well, did you learn anything, rookie? I'm like, I'm like yeah, that I can get my ass beat just like any other person can. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm like, all right, just spit it out. And he's like, would you do it over again? Would you run in that house all by yourself and, and without cover and, and all all alone? And I'm like, hell yeah, I would. That dude went up in there. There was a wife and two little kids. We're different, me and you, you know? And, right. and you meet officers, you know, and, and people in general that that are that way. And, you know, I guess, am I unsafe? <laughs> Maybe arguably depending on what kind of officer you're talking to. You know, I mean, going in a trap house, Wearing flip flip flops and cargo shorts probably not the smartest thing to do, um, but I did it, you know, probably a hundred times in the city of Dallas. Um, so we all became cops for different reasons, and I don't know, it's just who I am. I don't, I can't really run from from much. Not but that, no, that. there's no flight in you. There's obviously just pure fight, but that, and that's and that, that's what's gotten you through, gotten you through all this. And it's impressive. Um, you talked about your uh, you, you've been in three shootings, right? And you, and you and you talked about you mentioned the one squaring up with two people. Uh, that was kind of a hostage, yeah, uh, type deal. And you were you were going to buy dope, right? And right. You want to talk about that? Yeah, um, we can knock that one out. It's that that's a incredible story with a lot of details. Um, that that would it would take two hours but the, to, to really dig into the stuff that the behind the scenes stuff to that because it never should have never should have happened um and so anyway i was doing a i was in mid-level i was in the in the lab squad at that point and an officer had asked me to help him with a, with a street level dope and people think you know multiple kilos thousands of dollars big dope that's dangerous sure it's dangerous but your your real danger is 50 dollar rocks you know they don't value they'll they'll kill you if they if they knew they could get away with it they'd kill you for 50 bucks in your pocket because these these are fiends that are selling this dope you know and the turf wars are always so violent and you're just the customers are just a byproduct piece of shit that they got to deal with there is yeah. they not see you as any value whatsoever um so the street level deals are by far in my opinion the most dangerous and this was a 50 dollar crack buy I went in an apartment, made a, made the buy, real clean, in and out, uh, from this older guy. 
it was a little different in the fact that um, after I paid him the money, he tells me, all right, hang out here. I'm going to go get the dope. And I'm like, what do you mean hang out here? And he's like, yeah, you got to stay here. I don't have the dope here. I got to go get it. And I'd never had anybody leave me in a trap house unattended before. And for the listeners, mm-hmm. would you explain what a trap house is? Okay. Um, a trap house is just that. It's a trap. It's a fortified location that you can be allowed into and your ass ain't getting out. Unless you're allowed out. Until they allow you out. And they use fortifications, barn door barricades, cages, shark cages, Jamaican blocks, uh, windows are barred, um, chains, locks, uh, you know, and it's, it's very controlled. And those, those fortifications are there specifically to impede an entry team, law enforcement and other dope dealers. Right. It's to protect their dope and their money. Um, and so we call them trap houses. And so I'm in the trap, make the buy for $50 worth of coke, uh, rock, uh, cocaine, crack rock. And so he leaves, um, and, you know, you never let your money walk as a UC. But I was like, you know, I can... I can tear $50 worth of stuff up in this house, you know, if he doesn't bring me my money back, you know. And so, and there was actually furniture in the house, a little bit. There was a stereo, a game box, all the the typical stuff. So I felt confident. So he came back. um, It took a while. It took like 10 minutes. He comes back and he serves me and we leave. Um, But my my cover team had lost him in the parking lot because they were running surveillance and they were uh, trailing him and, and so we we're going to hit a double tap we we're going to hit that trap house i've made the buy-in and we're going to hit the, the stash house where they're cooking mm. and so um i needed to go back and but i'm busy i'm like all right i'm gonna go back i'm gonna make this second buy but i'm gonna intro intro you another detective so um i'm gonna cut through the chase here i get in there make the second buy long story short old school the dude i was dealing with ended up being a doorman he wasn't a dope dealer but i didn't know this so the transaction goes the same. Um, he told me he would go get it. He didn't even take my money. He left my money. Told me he's going to go get the dope. He'll be back. Um, and so when he leaves, I take that opportunity to bring another detective in there with me to do the intro and to be safer. So we got two two UCs in there at this point. Um, and while we're sitting there waiting for old school to get back, this young buster comes back in a, in a burgundy Honda. He, I'm, I'm in the kitchen looking out the window, and I said to the other UC, I'm like, dude, we got a player walking in here, man. He, I mean, you can tell just penitentiary bread, you know, mm-hmm. and yoked up, you know, just dacked, and uh, big, big dude, tatted from about here down. Mm-hmm. He walks in, looks at my partner, looks at me, and we're split like this, and he just pulls out a pistol, and boom, just challenges us, who the fuck are you? And I'm like, well, who the fuck are you? You know, just kind of staying in the role, playing the roles. And he, so he leans over with his pistol right in my face. He said, you're in my house. I said, cool. I will unass myself from your house right now. So I go to leave. My partner and I both go to leave. Boom, barricades the door. Mm. Yeah. So your heart rate starts. Yeah. Damn. So it, long story short, it turns into a full-blown hijacking. And my open line went down. Didn't know it. I was expecting at least a soft rescue. Then when it got real, when I was throwing out the rescue signals, I was expecting a hard rescue, and then it just became inevitable. I was in there 30 minutes. I'm by myself. I'm, it, ain't, it ain't happening. And I'm going to die in this roach-filled, piss-stained trap house, you know? And so I'm, I'm thinking, 
and I'm just, you know, talking, 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 and and, it, and he he put it on us pretty good. He jacked us. I mean, he got us. Won't go into those details, but he, you know, he punked us good, you know. And after he decided that he'd had his fill with us, he, uh, and I had a kind of a couple of chances to, to lay some heat on him in there, and uh-huh. you know, and I, I didn't. And there's, and you when you look at someone in a in a in a life and death situation, whether it be over in a war, whether it be an active shooter, whether it be a robbery, and they are combat ineffective. You look at your 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 battle buddy, and they are combat ineffective. How'd you know? I looked at him, you know, and I even had a full grip, and I was ready to go, and he backed down. No, 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 no. Backed me off. That person's still in the department? No. Will they hear this? Likely. Good. Um, and you think that? I, don't, I mean, I'm not trying to bash anybody, no. but uh, but so I knew that I had a bad issue, a serious issue. You know, uh, probably likely wasn't gonna wasn't gonna see my wife and kids anymore. And that's all I'm thinking about. You know, getting home to the family. So he lets us out. He lets us out. And I see the daylight, and I'm like, dear God, it's over. I, you know, I just wanted that fresh air. You know, it was a beautiful day. You know. And I know that sounds stupid, but I mean, you know, you see that daylight, and then right. you just. And so I made it out. I think it's over. My rescue team, Johnny, on the spot, they're right there. Like what? They're looking at me. I'm looking at them. Like what? They were both. Yeah. And so I go to get in, and they burn off. They leave me standing there. There's a, yeah. They. My combat effective buddy told them, "Leave y'all. Get out of here." Wow. You just mind. You just. And it turns out we we're being followed by somebody that was in the trap house, one of the, one of the little goons in the trap house was following us. And I went 333 yards, I know that because crime scene told me that it was 333 yards from the front door to where we had the shooting. Um, but that was my secondary pickup location. And my rescue team was right here around the corner. I'm walking up here and here comes the Burgundy Honda. Pulls right in front of me. I'm there by myself. Um, no cover, no partner, no nothing. And the doors open, and he pops out with a buddy, and there's a, a driver still in the car. And that's and he's coming right at me, and he he goes to clear his weapon, and I just widen my stance, and <laughs> shooters watch your target. And he got his gun up to about right here, and you know, mid chest. Yeah, mid chest, and I and went, but I was already punched out, and he turned, and I I saw his shirt flick and I was like there's a double long and heart popped him three times man done and then uh, engaged his buddy uh, and that was it man then I then I had to and I had to call 911 um, my rescue team comes burning around the corner they jump out you know we kind of stifle the situation there I got a two three people prone down on the ground I'm by myself um, and you know, then I start worrying about DPD coming up, coming in hot and sh- shooting me, you know. Right. So I'm trying to do my best on 911 to tell them, hey, we're undercover out here and we are armed. And there's a, there's like five of us at this point. Um, so we avoided that catastrophe. It was just good officers that responded, uh, good dispatcher. Anyway, that was um, that was the undercover shooting. Uh, you know, How'd you wind up by yourself? People... People's feet are fast, man. Gone. Mm. Combat ineffective. <laughs> yeah. Didn't want any of it. And 
I mean, I don't know how else to say it. You know, it is what it is, and and I'm not here to make any any sort of enemies. And and if people can learn off of this, then. And I also know that that you don't know how you're going to react in a situation. Yeah, nobody does. Like, look at that officer in Florida where they called him a coward, and he was like that school resource officer. He was right. an old dude. He was done, man. He was retiring, and that active shooter went to school. He didn't push in. I'm not going to call that guy a coward. Some, you know, a lot of people definitely would. Um, you don't know how you're going to react in an active shooter or when you're on your knees in a dope house and there's a pit. You don't know what you're going to do. Um so I'm I'm I hold my tongue when when I see people do things that I don't know that I would have done or I hope I wouldn't have done because I know I'll I'll be the next one to make a big old stupid mistake. But Matt, all you can work be concerned with is how you react. You can't like if, yes. if somebody was busting this door right now. Yes. yes. I have I can only yeah. act how I'm going to act. Yeah, you might end up on this table. Exactly. I may yeah. Barrel to this window. Sure. It depends on what you ate for breakfast, yep. I guess. Right. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I may do what that dog was doing in the garage. Me too. I might be right behind, behind you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you don't know. And, and, you know, in teaching these recruits, the way to, to, to beat that is mental and physical preparation. Put yourself in those situations mentally uh, and do it. And when you're in patrol and when you're actively doing this job, you have to do that regularly you have to or you're going to get caught slipping and you're going to be sitting there like all those other officers on july 7th and all these other critical incidents praying that they had a redo i need a read can i please have a redo you don't get redos so the way to to combat that is is mentally physically prepare for that regularly if you're a, if you're a police officer because you never know what's going to happen yep. you never know what it's, and when it's, it's always on those beautiful short. sunny days yeah always you have a rare skill set. You're one of the few people in our department that has been successful in SWAT and undercover narcotics, and they are two different skill sets. Do you agree? That is, they, man, those two mindsets do nothing but collide. Okay, you've done both. So let's get, let's think. I got an example. I thought of this on the way over here. So you get a complaint, all right? It's a bad guy. You know, he's selling bootleg CDs out of a tent in in a city park. You know, real badass. You know. <laughs> Well, how's SWAT going to do that? They're going to, oh, we need snipers. Let's get a gas plant. Let's get our explosive breachers up. You know, we're going to get this dude. And we're going to take 40 people out there with all kind of body armor. And we're going to gas them out there. Undercover, he's going to say, Sergeant's going to say, hey, man, can you take care of this? He's like, give me 20 minutes. He's going to stroll out there in a pair of cowboy boots, blue jeans. He's going to go in the tent. Make, he'd be, hey, man, I'll give me $10 on that old school Tupac, you know. Yeah. And he's going to wrestle the dude in the handcuffs. And he's going to come out, all right, case closed. Then SWAT's gonna look at me. He didn't even check his blind spot when he went in that tent. You know, unsafe. And so it's it's a totally different mindset operationally. And and it's been great over the years watching these two these two organizations just go head to head, toe to toe, and it's not stopping and it ain't ever gonna stop. And it's uh but you're right. You're right. You have to uh you have to be very open-minded. And I think the best SWAT operators while I was over there were the ones that came out of narcotics. Now, I'm going to catch hell for saying that. <laughs> but uh, it just gives you the ability to be open-minded and, and uh, kind of like uh, Lieutenant was saying, you know, narcotics officers, yeah, that dope's not worth your life. Relax, you know. Um, so it's different operational mindsets, different priorities. Um, you know, undercovers, they go in these trap houses, they risk their lives, they actually care about a conviction. 
because of what they did in that investigation. SWAT don't give a damn about that conviction on that bad guy. They're, they're there to tear up a house, have fun, run a op, run a warrant, and use their toys. But that UC's got a lot of personal things invested that put the risk in his life. He's got a family at home. He went in there and made that UC buy, and SWAT's not going to look at it that way. So yeah, that's not their function. That they're, nope. fun, they're, they're, nope. they're not an investigative branch. They're right. just operational. They're, the support, they're operational, and they go in Can't and Can't be mad at them. Right. No, they're... Oh, Until they call me stupid for going and buying dope, then I'll be mad at them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, just because you're too scared or whatever. You right. Know? <laughs> you, didn't want, you didn't want to do that in your career? Yeah. That's fine. I've, I've I've been called unsafe and and ignored oh, myself sure. and I'm, I'm sure you've heard it and I, I don't care I don't care what people think right and I know you don't because and people that sit and want to talk shit and they and they want to armchair quarterback you in Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday more you know morning quarterback you most of them have done shit in their career. you're right they sit Absolutely. and they they They've just taken have tests opinion. though oh they'll They've take a test tests. and promote but that's yeah. you know. I don't, I don't care. I always consider, with anything that's said, no matter personal or professional life, I always consider the source. And I really don't. Now, honestly, if you were to say say something to me critical, it would mean something to me. If Misty would or Randy, it would mean something. There's some other people that talk shit. I've heard people talking shit about this podcast already. And we, we've only released two episodes. <laughs> and you know what? Consider the source. I consider the source, and sure. I don't care. Yeah, so. absolutely. But I think cops have a real good... Uh, understanding of know who they can trust and who they can't. I think that's what Joe's idea and vision on this thing is hopefully the person sitting in that chair trusts what, you know, or has to know that we've got some skin on the wall to where, and I think too, we'll be the first to admit that him and I don't know anything about SWAT or narcotics. You know, we've sat there, you know, watched perimeter for you guys over the years when those things have gone on, but you know, we're going to defer to you guys because we know that's y'all's field. And I think most good cops, you know, like you were talking about uh, the combat ineffective people, sometimes they don't realize that or see that or they're ignorant to those type of things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, right. it's one of those things you consider the source and... Yep. Well, not many people yeah. think they're incompetent. I mean, honestly, the high majority of people probably don't think they're incompetent and they probably all think they will perform at a high level in any situation. And, you know, and they might deep down know their limits, but I don't think... It, a lot of people don't know their limits until it's pushed. And then when it is pushed, then you have different reactions and different um, mm-hmm. and different actions that that you, you you saw you had a front row seat. Right. Um, you've been in a lot of shit. I would. I, I haven't talked about this one. Okay. Norm Smith. Okay. Yep. Go ahead, please. So this was right after this little patrol incident. I was new up in narcotics, and I had been in gang unit um, as a uh, you know for four to six months running with Darian Loera, Norm Smith and, and the gang unit and stuff and BK Nelson, all those legends. And Norm was a very nice guy. Huge mm-hmm. dude. Y'all everybody knew Norman. Mm-hmm. He was like the um poster of Big Russian. Yep. Of D P D gang unit. And me being the rookie and the new guy, um, he never disrespected me. But, you know, he wasn't ever like, hey, uh, new guy, come come sit on my lap. I'm going to teach you a thing or two. He was just, he was just there, uh, and I knew he was running the show, you know, because we'd have our meetings, our, our, our briefings every day. They would tell what gang's doing what, what sets where, and this, that. And then everybody would defer to Norma. All right, what are we doing? What's the plan, big Russian? So that was, to me, that was who this guy was, just kind of larger-than-life cop that even the hooks had utmost of respect for. And 
So I was at the headquarters that evening when he got shot, <clears throat> and I heard it over the radio, and I was in uniform, so I had police radio, and I hear, I get a text, I don't know how I heard it, but the officer down, uh, turn on the, so I turned the radio on, and I learned it was a gang unit officer, so I, I didn't know what to do, but it was the unit I had just come from, and felt I needed to do something, so and I heard they were in route to Baylor, so I went down there, and I got there as the ambulance was pulling up, and they wheeling him right past me, and working on him you know and i see that entrance wound above his eye on his forehead and i was like and, and officers were pouring into the emergency room and i knew he was it was over for him you know and i go outside just you know we start feeling that vest clamping up on you you just need to breathe right i went outside and i could feel i was getting a little upset you know and there was a sergeant out there man running just running the show you 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 and i said sarge what do you need from me and he gives me a piece of paper. He goes, this is Norm's mother. She's out in Coffin County. Go get her. And I said, is there anything else that you need from me besides that? You know, of course, I didn't say that, but I said, yes, sir. Me and James DePute went code three all the way out there, and we linked up with the sheriff's department on the side of the road that was going to escort us in. And we, it's dark, and I pull up into the yard of this little house, and his stepdad, I guess, I don't know if it was step, I can't remember, but um, older man and woman, one of the dads wearing like a bathrobe, and his mom comes out, and I couldn't, I literally couldn't speak. I I couldn't react, I couldn't respond, I couldn't speak, and the deputy that was with me sees this, and he's like, ma'am, this officer's going to take you to your son. And I was like, thank you, thanks. And I, gave, I still couldn't, I just looked at him, gave him a thumbs up. We got in the squad car, and oh, that was that was probably the worst experience you know I've ever had. Um, so we're lights and sirens all the way back to Dallas, and she is the whole time doing the talking. And this woman is the strongest person I could ever describe to you. Um, and she's talking about her son and how she raised him to be a warrior. And you know there was some denial there. And I'm just, uh, man, by the time I got to the ER, my face was soaking wet, you know, with this, with this poor lady. Um, and took her to her son. And that night, <laughs> that was literally like I walked into a liquor store in full DPD uniform and bought a bottle of Jack. And the clerk says to me, you know, wow, rough night, huh? I'm just like, and again, I was just going to say, yeah, it was a bad one. And I couldn't talk, you know. Again, I was like, just, mm. And got my change and went home and sat there until the sun came up and just reevaluated everything, you know. And the reality of this job is, uh, it's a bitch, you know, when, when, it, when it is. So, anyway, I just, I've never... You know, nobody really knows that side of that, and, and that's a horrible, horrible story, you know. Everything surrounding that incident, you know, it changed the way we operate, some some ways for the good, you know. and But that was a very, very valuable life DPD officer that, you know, everybody still misses to this day, and it's, he's still talked about, as, as they all should be, because that man was a legend, you know. And the work he did for this city was almost uncomparable. So anyway, I had to get that out there. No, um, hey, 
Uh, man, I'm glad you told that. We were, you were you were texting me about it uh, about it last night, and uh, got caught up in a moment. I'm glad you I'm glad you brought it back to that because I wanted you to tell that story. Um, I want you to get it in July 7th. Yeah. Okay, because that is a whole story outside of what we've already talked about. Your crazy Tom and Jerry fight to your undercover <clears throat> shooting. And, you know, um, I want everybody to hear it, but I don't want you to rush it. So that being said, everybody's got to tune in to the next episode because we're going to have a great Matt Baines part two. I want to tell everybody it's probably going to come out a week after this hits just because I'm selfish. Maybe I'll cut, maybe I'll release a little sooner. But everybody's got to hear it, and I want you—I want to hear everybody hear your involvement and everybody, everything that you went through during that, then after, and everybody that you helped. All right. Look forward to it. All right, folks, tune in to the next episodes to hear part two of this uh, 